action. Welcome to Torn Stops with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We continue our celebration of 21st century horror as we move on to Jordan Peele's Get Out, Joshua. <laughs> What's Arnold Schwarzenegger got to do with all this? Because <laughs> he's always like, Get out, uh, get to the chapel, I'm pregnant. <laughs> Maybe that's the one thing that was missing from Get Out was Arnie popping up at the end going, Get out! Get out! Consider this a divorce. 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 (laughs) Chris Washington, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is travelling to upstate New York to meet the parents of his girlfriend, Rose, played by Alison Williams. His worry that she hasn't told her parents that he's black initially seems unfounded, as Rose's mother, played by Catherine Keener, and father, played by Bradley Whitford, are nothing but welcoming. But Chris is unnerved by the fact that the family have black staff, and when he recognises another black man, played by Lakeith Stanfield, at a party, he decides something very strange is going on. But what, and is his life in danger? So before we get into it, I know that you feel a little uncomfortable featuring get out on the podcast do you want to address the big white elephant (laughs) in the room (laughs) i don't feel uncomfortable featuring it at all but i i do feel like there's been so much um sort of discourse about black voices should be able to sort of speak for themselves without having white people to you know keep talking about it sort of at that from like a white perspective um and yeah it just it's something that i would like to address the fact that we're kind of two white guys talking about a very important black piece of cinema you've made an assumption there that we're both strictly white oh i mean there's so many shades of white it's not about it's not about (laughs) shades in in terms of the idea of white privilege yes my skin is the creaminess of a milky bar but in terms of white privilege i'm not strictly white i may pass for white Uh but i'm not i i don't think i can be considered fully white look at it this way if i went to a white supremacy rally with a black friend they would look at him and go hmm he shouldn't be here he's a black man we don't like black people and they'd look at me and to look at me visually they would go oh he's a white guy but as soon as they find out i'm jewish yeah they're like you're not white you're not white you know white mm. privilege that kind of white privilege is in the eye of the beholder yeah so they don't think i'm white so in the eyes of white privilege i'm not white i'm jewish i am separate to the white race so to speak, mm-hmm. I am a whole other kettle of gefilte fish. <laughs> so when it comes when it comes to conversations about who is allowed to talk about what, I don't think it's as binary as, well, white people can't talk about black films mm-hmm. because then where do we draw the line? Oh, I completely agree. Do we then agree. say straight people can't talk about gay films? Mm. We've spoken about French Canadian films on the podcast. We've spoken about Latino films. Yeah, I know. I, I have I never 
been to Mexico and I've never been to <laughs> Canada, whether the non the non French speaking parts or the French speaking parts, but we're still talking about them. And I know, I know there's a whole discourse to be had about certain voices being silenced in favour of other voices, but. I would never expect anyone to not talk about LGBT cinema because they're not part of the community. I wouldn't expect anyone to not talk about Jewish cinema because they're not part of the Jewish community. Yeah. All voices are valid. We should all be able to talk about everything because even if you hate something, that's a valid response. As long as you're not hateful... Because then that goes, I think, past film criticism and just into arseholery. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, as yeah. long as you're not being an arsehole, I think it's perfectly legitimate for a white guy and a Jewish guy to sit here and talk about a film that is about not just black issues, as we'll get into it. Mm. Really, the film is about the the black point of view towards the liberal white point of view. Carry on. (laughs) Well, look at it this way. It's a film about how a black guy played by the amazing Daniel Kulua, he goes to his very waspy, white, upper middle class girlfriend's family home And he's kind of confronted with a strange kind of racism. It's not an aggressive Nazi-type racism. It's very much a case of, hey, I'm on your side kind of racism, but I'm going to say things that are so wildly and weirdly inappropriate that me, as the person saying them, I'm completely ignorant to the fact that they are weird and inappropriate things yeah you know the the dad says you know i would have voted for obama for a third term if i could have mm-hmm. well a apropos of nothing you're talking about barack obama b just because chris is black does that and does that immediately mean that he's going to support obama yeah there's more to obama than the color of his skin his his foreign policy was strange his his policy of locking mexican kids in cages before trump was strange so there's just because he's black doesn't mean he's going to be supporting barack obama in the same way that because i'm jewish people just assume that i'm a zionist no i don't give a fuck about israel i don't like how they've become some sort of weird bully colonization place that is basically doing to the Palestinians what the Nazis did to the Jews in some sense. Mm. You know, they're not they're not rounding up Palestinians and exterminating them in camps, but they have created a a two-tiered class system where Palestinians are not allowed to have the same rights as Israelis slash Jews. So to just assume that Chris is a supporter of Barack Obama is racist Mm -hmm. but it's not an aggressive form of racism oh no it's far more insidious and and it's interesting that that chris actually remains silent through a lot of the interactions he he doesn't have a voice he is being told who he is what he is by everybody 
all of the white people at, at that party that turn up they all te- they all kind of like tell him who he is and what he means to them but not who he mm. actually authentically is as an individual like they're fetishizing him um which is clearly the you know a massive point the film makes in its third act but he remains silent and he he's sort of clearly learned that he shouldn't couldn't can't speak against these these sort of assumptions that are made about him because there's i've read a really fascinating article on vox that i think came out around the same time the film did discussing all the issues that the film tackles and you know this is entertainment this is this is a really entertaining film it's not heavy with these issues but there's so much to dig into and this Vox article talked about the the link between, or you know, the perceived link between black resistance movements and violence, and how violence is something that um, has been, you know, punishable in the U.S. as particularly for people of color, um, and you know, there's that there's that conflict between. Um, is the only way to disrupt the the you know the narrative of the of the oppressor is the only way to do that through violence and and we've seen it over the years particularly with the you know the black panthers um and what happened after hurricane katrina and then obviously black lives matter you know all these all these moments when black voices have spoken up and been accused of violence rather than actual meaningful um discussion and discourse and so chris in this film he doesn't speak up he doesn't say anything because he's learned that anything he does as a black man uh, will be interpreted as violent or antagonistic and it's only when he is faced with um you know the the true horror of this situation he has no choice he's finally pushed into such a position that his only action has to be violence. Otherwise, he's going to die. Um, yeah. And there's that. There's obviously that moment at the end where she's on the floor and the police turn up and he's just ready. He's putting his hands up. Mm. He's just ready because he knows what it looks like. Yeah. He knows that if a policeman steps out that car, it's going to be him they shoot because there's a white woman shot in the stomach on the floor. Yeah. Then it turns into his, his wisecracking funny sidekick mm. friend well did you know that's not um, the original ending yeah the original ending is it's as exactly i just that. described yeah the two it's exactly that and he it, gets it's arrested. a downer he's put in jail um, and both are valid to be honest yeah both are valid the film would work you know the film would work perfectly fine with either ending neither ending disrupts what we've just seen yeah it could be it could also be that chris is just so used to this quandary this constant fetishization this constant assumptions mm. that he's just like whatever just whatever you know i yeah. used to get it i used to get it um out in the clubs if if someone had their their straight friend with <laughs> them girlfriend let's say they'd be like oh oh we're gonna be best friends you're gonna be my gay pet now and i'm just like oh really <laughs> really that's that's the whole hindu the hindu party um, argument where it's like you know a lot of gay clubs ban hindus because 
you, men don't want to be sort of like objectified gay men don't want to be objectified in their own safe spaces by well, people who fetishize I'm not a pair. Them. I'm not a bloody pair. I'm not a, an attraction. Mm. Uh, I'm attractive, but I'm not an attraction. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I've had it happen to me. I've I've had people sort of come up to me in in gay clubs and and they just assume that I want to sort of, you know, have a good time with a stranger and I'm just like I was having a good time with my friends. I you know, no, please, thank you. Bye. No, stranger danger. Stranger. Yeah, I know. Stranger. <laughs> can we talk about can we talk about Chris's friend Rod? He's hilarious. So exhausting. Couldn't yeah. spend much more than five minutes with him. But <laughs> exhausting but funny very funny well because for me he's basically he... the male wonder sykes yeah absolutely he was that but for me he also almost represented the very like verging on the stereotypical way that black people ca- have been portrayed in films in the past you know he's almost like the ll yeah. cool j in halloween h20 or deep blue sea um mm. he he's that hundred percent that kind of really talkative slightly over the top, you know. It's Eddie Murphy from yeah. For the Eight Hours. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't, I couldn't really tell if he's undermining this film or if he exists there as a parody of that trope. I would think if it is a parody of the trope, it kind of, maybe it's a little um, Easter egg that people would put online with a hashtag, if you know, you know. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a trap. I mean, it works in, the context of the film away from the stereotype right it works as funny fucker mm-hmm. bit of bit of comedy for the film because no other character is a comedic character there are funny moments but yeah. no other character is you know that is the role that is usually played by a stand-up comic which is why i said wanda sykes mm-hmm. wanda sykes i don't know how many houses she's bought but at least 10 of them have been bought off the back of playing characters just like that. Yeah. She spent the, you know, the, the, the noughties playing like in monster in law with Jane Fonda. Oh yeah. And, and Billy Porter seems to have picked up that baton and he's Mm. running with it. Right. So I, I mean, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think Jordan Peele understands that he comes from a comedy troupe himself. Um, with, um Keegan. Can't remember the can't remember Keegan's first name. Isn't it Key is it Key? Keegan Key. Or is it Key the sure abbreviation for Keegan? Sure it's Keegan. It's like Keegan and Peel or something. Yeah. But I mean they never really made it over here. I never knew who Jordan Peel was until no. this film. No. They were like the they are basically the Morecambe and Wise of America. They're like the Anton Deck of right. America. <laughs> Anton Deck, yeah. <laughs> the the little Jimmy Cranky and whoever little Jimmy Cranky's with. The yeah. Keith and Orville. Right? So it's it's not a stretch of imagination to think that yeah Jordan Peele understands the role of that character. Mm-hmm. Does he push it to the point where, within the context of the film, that trope is revealed in the way that maybe is making a, a comment on these films? Probably not because it's not that sort of film. The film isn't meta in that respect. Mm. Oh, I mean, I suppose this if isn't... if he is a a sort of a parody. He could also be an homage because the film is named after Eddie Murphy's 1983 stand-up TV special called Delirious, where he talks about how a black family would have reacted in horror movie situations like Poltergeist. 
And, mm. you know, he talks about if they'd gone into the house and a voice went, get out, he'd be like, okay, bye then. <laughs> you know, whereas the white but family also, is also, like, seems nice. It's also based on a Dave Chappelle skit as well. Oh, uh, okay. So there's clearly a big, a big love of and a big nod and a big hug to uh, the comedian's that came before and, and you know really groundbreaking mm. comedians eddie murphy was hugely groundbreaking you know he was the first he was the first snl cast member to host an episode of snl hmm. even chevy chase hadn't done that before <laughs> right and obviously dave chappelle it was an absolute trailblazer and irregardless of the controversy he still is hmm. such a masterful comedian oh yeah regardless of what he says and there's a conversation to be had around that but that's not for here <laughs> so you know with with jordan peele being part of, of a, a comedy trope troupe he understands his troupe he understands his comedy history yeah so maybe for him this is his silent protest against that type of character mm. but it's such a charming character. If he was going for that, he's kind of undermined it. Because <laughs> yeah. you just want to see more of him. And also, he's kind of almost right. He, he's the one who keeps yelling sex slave. And even though that is yeah. something slightly more insidious than that actually going on, <laughs> essentially, that is what's happening. <laughs> you know? He's, he's the, mm. the sounding board character that you need, the main character to have, in order for the audience to keep up um otherwise it would just be chris thinking to himself constantly and you would never see that unless you're watching june 1984 where all the thoughts are projected for the audience the hypnosis scene mm. it is obviously it is the the huge and the best the greatest the most important set piece in the yeah. movie and it is handled so brilliantly by someone who this is their first film this is Jordan Peele's first film as director. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's and so he comes up with something like that. It's so um, powerful, and that image of Daniel Kaluuya looking with his eyes open and the tears and the shocked expression where he's just frozen. That image was is so iconic. I think they actually did use it on the poster, right? Because it was just sort of yeah. It just spoke to to the the many different layers occurring in this film in such a potent way and it's the image that stays with you for the entire film and even after the film you just think of that that image of his face it's just an amazing performance yeah it's exquisite the sound design the unsettling score the performances from daniel kalua and i don't know the lady's name Catherine keener Kathleen keener she actually began the scene they hadn't i think she said they hadn't rehearsed and uh when he sat down in the chair to, to start playing the scene on camera she said to him oh i thought you were um american not british or something and he looked really confused and then the line that he says is oh we're doing this now that was actually him saying to her are we actually doing the scene and they just continued (laughs) with the script so she cleverly got him on the back foot there just brilliant sneaky teacup lady (laughs) sneaky teacup um but the camera work is it's brilliant. It's just really simple. It's not flashy. He's just yeah. pushing that camera in, just a slow track in. Mm-hmm. I would put it on par with the parlor scene from Psycho 1960. Oh, yeah. That's a good comparison. Because that tension in that scene is unbearable. 
and it's just two characters talking to each other you know almost point of view sort of face you know almost like science the lamb style you get the 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 characters looking at the camera so you feel completely absorbed into the scene yeah i could see that definitely i wonder if that was a conscious reference for jordan peele because you've got the 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 animal heads all over the place as well you know it all ties in yes you have yeah i want to talk about the animal heads Mm. what's the significance of the wounded deer that they sort of drive into or rather the 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 deer is skipping along and then just gets plowed down by a rental car Mm. what's the significance of that that scene that happening well is it another animal is it another living thing being hunted you know it it's like they've they've um portray they what's the word they've framed a stag's head in their house as this sort of like trophy and all of the black characters in the film are being used by white characters as trophies essentially and so that's that you know there's that symbolism when uh, chris kills the the dad who is the one who's performing the the surgery he uses the stack he uses the yeah like the symbol of um something else that has been hunted by these white people basically quite an elaborate thing to carry into a fight <laughs> what yeah. if the other gun what's he gonna do throw the deer head at him and hope <laughs> that he, he knocks the fucking gun out of his hand there's Surely just a knife would have been better or a spanner uh, or a, a really heavy shoe yeah heavy sh- yeah oh yeah scalpel that makes more sense than a heavy shoe but he needed um, the element there's... of surprise because he's been so fucked with like mentally that you yeah. just get the feeling that the smallest thing would make him would knock him off his feet you know he he's so completely um been you know messed around with he's so vulnerable there's there's the idea of a an innocent creature being captured being sacrificed yeah and I guess it's in place of a lamb. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, and there's the that tragedy looking the, up at him. The tragedy of this majestic creature, which is the stag, just you know, so majestic, so powerful. Um, you know, it's it it carries with it some meaning. I think that um, you know the the conversation, or it's not even a conversation. The moment when the the white guy at the party says um, something about how attractive black men are i think um and how something it's like, like it's fashion fashionable style yeah it's in fashion yeah so there is some kind of link going on there i think between that there's definitely a, a parallel between the deer lying there looking up at mm. daniel kilua unable to move but being fully conscious mm. which is basically the state that daniel will spend the last third of the movie in yeah and is it like an, a portent of doom as well? It, it kind of has that horror thing going for it where it's almost like the stag was trying to warn him, don't fucking go in there. <laughs> what, like Mad Ralph yeah. from Friday the 13th? It's got a death curse. <laughs> it's got a death curse up there. Yeah. Talking about old people, why does the grandpa regard Chris with some sort of look when he first arrives at that at that time we don't know it's the grandpa we just see it as the, the the groundskeeper yeah i couldn't work out what the look was is it suspicion is it contempt what is it but he regards him strangely when um what's his face from the west wing is yeah is giving him the tour oh yeah he is from the west wing yeah yeah 
Well, is it, is it not? Josh. Josh from the West Yeah, Wing. of course. Whenever I picture him, I just picture him sort of like walking a lot down a corridor, talking at the same time, kind of a bit frantic. Walking and talking. That's Aaron Sorkin's style, <laughs> isn't it? Walk and talk. Yeah. Go get them. Go to get you, go to get you 10,000 steps in, even if you are the president and the leader of the free world. <laughs> well, the look that the grandpa gives him, is that sort of not just indicative of the the conflict of this entire sort of completely insane situation that's going on which is rich white people taking black people using their bodies for their own means you know and by all accounts you know racist white people so just because grandpa is now in a black body that doesn't mean he's not racist anymore no because it's a different form of racism it's not a it's not a racism that is aggressive and and Mm. hate you know he's not he's not filled with so much hate that he would be able to you know that he wouldn't be able to control his hateful impulses to the point where he would be scouring at chris at the mere sight of a black man Mm. they they love or see something in the 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 black form that unfortunately is fetishizing and therefore a form of racism so i don't know if that holds water Mm. and i thought maybe it was whoever is whoever is inside whoever's body that is that grandpa is now inhabiting if that person was regarding chris with some sort of warning but i get the feeling that grandpa is able to hold on to his host's body and suppress the 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 host down into the sunken place so much more than grandma because i think grandma is the weaker of the two there she's the one that seems to have an issue with keeping her host in the sunken place because there's that scene where she comes to apologize to chris because chris was moaning that his phone was unplugged yeah and it seems that you know she begins to cry and it seems that grandma is unable to hold the person in the sunken place and when grandma's pushed that person down and then she goes no 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 oh my god yeah to use something betty gabriel she's so good she's phenomenal yeah so good i mean the performances across the whole film are brilliant yeah i mean yeah absolutely but the first time i watched it her she her character in particular was such an intriguing one because you really couldn't tell what was going on you knew that she she was somehow conveying this this sense of her being trapped in the house but you didn't really know why or how she really felt about that or how she was even surviving um and so you get these little, you know, like the moments like that with the no, 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 where you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it's actually <laughs> a really great mystery. And it's so good. I'd actually forgotten that was the twist. I'd forgotten it was like a body swapping thing. But here's the thing. Does this film absolutely require a second viewing or can you just get it on the first one? Well, I think if you'd asked me that after the first time I'd watched it, I would have said it's a one watch film because that it's it, it's all about the the suspense building up to the reveal of what actually is going on so that's why i haven't gone back to it you know i watched it when it came out i really enjoyed it 
um, and have never really had a huge desire to go back to it. But I'm really glad that I did because watching it a second time, you, especially with a bit of distance, um, you really appreciate just how well crafted it is. You know, I, it's it's a masterpiece. The the unraveling of the tension is. is masterful, and it and actually it didn't matter that I, I I kind of had forgotten what the twist was, but I vaguely knew what direction it was going in, um, and it was still brilliant. It still completely gripped me, and I think you can find joy in those little moments that are done so impeccably well like when the Keith Stanfield turns up and you've seen him at the beginning being kidnapped and suddenly he comes back behaving in a completely different way um, and even if you do know what the twist is I think that you can just find joy in, in the the way it's just done so well I think the first watch we're on the same level as chris it's a complete mystery to him it's a complete mystery to us on the second watch we know what happens and therefore you can see the clues and they're screaming in your face because they suddenly hold so much more weight and power yeah you know you see how the plan is pulled off and you you know the first time you watch it and rose is stopping daniel kalua from giving his his id over to the police and you just think oh well the loving girlfriend yeah she's standing up yeah she's sticking it up for the man she's an ally no she's covering her ass she's making sure there's no legal Mm. paperwork red tape trace of chris being in that area with her yeah she constantly gets him to stay yeah the old people and the grandparents you understand their behavior when the dad is giving the the tour and he says, oh, that basement door's locked. We've got an issue with black mold in the basement. Black mold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where they mold people into the form of black that they like. Mm-hmm. We always leave a piece of grandma in the kitchen and there's grandma stood there in the kitchen. <laughs> and grandpa running, trying to beat Jesse Owens' time. Yeah. All these things. And it kind of places us with the family we are part of that conspiracy we're part of that that cover-up you mm-hmm. know we're part of the plan we know what's happening and we sort of see them playing with chris like oh. a, a cat with a ball of wool and there's another one there's the moment where when caleb landry jones comes in and he is amazing and he tells the story about rose where she she bit the guy's tongue and it that's another clue that she's not as innocent as she seems on the surface yeah it's so clever yeah. I mean, Caleb, Caleb, whatever his face, he always plays these horrible redneck type <laughs> psychopaths. But he was an X Men as well. He was in X Men First Class as Banshee. He was, yeah, yeah. But you know that was a baby role. Yeah, but he's played he's played some great dickheads. You know, he was in mm. um he was in American Made as Tom Cruise's brother in law. He was in uh oh, I always want to call it. Seven billboards outside Epping oh, Forest, but it's not three that. billboards. <laughs> three she billboards outside Epping, Epping, Missouri, wasn't yeah. it? Not Epping Forest. That's here. Isn't it? In... <laughs> and he's always carrying something that could be weaponized. He's always got something like a metal stick or a lacrosse stick. He's always yeah. there holding something that he could use against Chris if he if he wanted to. Who's looking at who in this film? Oh man. Might have to get a bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of looking in yeah. the film, right? You've got 
Chris, who is a digital photographer, and oh, we, yeah, often of see course, through, yeah. we often see through his viewpoint, you know, his viewfinder. You know, we, we start off by seeing some of his images, which have obviously been created by him looking through the camera. And more than that, speaking as a photographer, it's more than just looking through the camera. You have to have a certain viewpoint on the world to create certain images. Mm. We see Chris's point of view in the sunken place because when we see up to that square, they're looking at him. You know, they're looking into the camera. So we're being placed in Chris's point of view. But the white peeps are all viewing him secretly. You know, and their their reasons are hidden for the mm. most part. Obviously, on a second watch, you notice it. And there's even that moment where Chris is viewing from across the garden the guy that was kidnapped at the start of the film. Yeah, He's with a group of white people and he's sort of spinning around, showing off his new body. Mm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of looking, but Chris doesn't see them for who they really are until it's too late. Yeah. So there's a lot of the act of looking or the act of not seeing, because there's a difference between looking and seeing, Mm. you know, physically I can look, but do I see? Yeah. And he's under constant scrutiny. You know, you can almost feel the weight of people looking at him. Yeah. Especially at that part, like that party scene really stands out for me because it's just so uncomfortable and like that's at the root i think of jordan peele's sort of a reason for making this which was he said i've never seen the uncomfortableness of being the only black guy in a room played in a film mm. and you know he said that's the perfect state for a protagonist of a horror film because <laughs> it's sort of like people looking at you and you feel conspicuous and i, I mean i kind of feel i've i've felt that as a as a gay man kind of being sometimes sometimes walking into a pub like a rowdy pub um i feel like holy shit i really stick out here um so i kind of yeah i kind of really that that scene really resonates for me that idea of being in a party where you feel so conspicuous and then he kind of reaches out to the to the keith stanfield and says oh thank god there's somebody else here and then he's (laughs) you know part of it obviously so even that is taken away from him poor bastard yeah is there a tension here between the past and the present? Mm. All the tough ones, Joshua. I'm giving you all the tough questions. I know. Well, because and you're on your second day of hungover. <laughs> Halloween hangover. It's um, <laughs> well. So the the Armitage family, the White family, they are refusing to give up their position as this sort of like rich white family, basically. So they are, they're basically looking for ways to be immortal. So I guess that's one way that there's sort of a tension between past and present. But we're kind of in, are we in the, where are we? Upstate New York. So it's kind of... Hamptons areas, right? Yeah, it's the Hamptons, yeah. But hilariously, when they shot this, they shot it in um, Alabama at the same time as the election campaigning was going on. And so many oh, houses oh. in Alabama had the pro-Trump messaging uh-huh. in their windows the and their lawns and stuff. It's just, you couldn't make it up. Um, <laughs> is there a tension between past and present? Well, because I guess Chris is like a very modern, a modern character. You know, he's he's like a, 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 a creative city guy from what we can tell. Whereas he gets taken into the middle of nowhere 
where it is sort of weirdly primitive. It, it's sort of like steeped in the tradition of hundreds of years of, you know, Bible bashing white folk. Well, that's the thing, right? It It feels very much steeped in the American history mm. connected to the slave trade. The house looks like a plantation house oh god the house that's so big you can't actually fit it in the frame it's the wings don't fit in the actual frame <laughs> yeah and it's got those columns with the yeah. porch right it's got black servants basically doing slave jobs yeah she's in the kitchen and he's out back chopping wood mm. you've got elderly people wanting to be young and hip and the way that they see young and hip is having the black body beautiful. There's an old TV, the fancy old teacup. Mm. And it's strange that Chris comes in with his digital camera and his modern hip way of being a black person that doesn't seem to fit in with their ideas of what it means to be a black person in the 21st century. Yeah. So there's this real tension between the past and the reality of, of the present. Mm. And it seems to be that one thing that this film is, is a fight between the old attitudes, the new attitudes, and who's going to win. Yeah. What's going to win out. Luckily for Chris, <laughs> he's beat the shit out of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's His also kind of. A pretend police car. <laughs> it's also kind of folding in a lot of cinematic references as well. So we had um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier, which is a 60s film where he's a uh -huh. black guy being taken home to his white girlfriend's family to meet them. Mm -hmm. um, there is, is it Far From Heaven, which is about a white woman falling in love with her black gardener? Um, I'm not aware of that set one. Set in the 40s, I think, or 50s. Beautiful film. Um, and then you have Night of the Living Dead, obviously, which is sort of yeah. the first and best of the modern horror films. And that is about a black hero. And the tragedy is that he's not killed by zombies. He's killed by the police. You know, that, that film... There are films that have been having these conversations. But I think that maybe America, maybe, specifically, wasn't ready to have the the conversation that that arose from those films and it, it's kind of that's something that really struck me when i watched uh summer of soul the documentary about the um the harlem festival in 1969 i think the same year as woodstock something like that yeah and it it's kind of like these these concerns about harlem and and impoverished communities specifically impoverished black communities in new york you know, they've been going on for decades, but yeah. it's only now that something is actually happening. Um, you know, th change happens so slowly. But I think that that's why Get Out hit so hard, because it, it drew on the, you know, the combined discourse of the past to really capture a moment and capture the imagination of a society that was maybe poised already or thinking about change do you think there could be a sequel well that's the thing is there hasn't been a sequel which is weird for blumhouse mm. um because they 
sequelize a lot of their really successful films like this made 255 million from a tiny 4.5 million budget so by all accounts it should have a sequel but i just i wonder if they won't do it because they've 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 made their point you know the conversation hasn't moved on enough yet for them to do a sequel well it doesn't feel like that for me it doesn't feel like it needs one it's a perfect twilight zone episode yeah that is done and dusted it's made its point it's got in made its point and it's got out <laughs> yeah got out <laughs> right where where else can we go well he goes back to what save the other guys yeah that's not necessarily his that's not really chris's motivation there mm. you know it's not called get out with everyone else it's called get out chris wants to get out he doesn't necessarily feel that he needs to go save the other peeps does he yeah and whatever they do it would surely just be retracing what they did with this film even if they change the setting to like mm. the deep south or something it would still presumably be the same struggle the same story but i think what it has done is just paved the way for more black um artists to do their work you know we've it, mm. we haven't seen an, a, an absolute torrent of of black horror films but we've seen a fair few of them like you know we've got the candy man the new candy man came out there's a great film called his house directed by remy weeks which is um about south sudanese refugees who are placed in a house in southeast england and they kind of start to see things in the house it's a really fantastic film um and then blumhouse you know we've got the welcome to blumhouse films that are on amazon prime which are sort of more more mid low budget films, but they they still are focused a lot around um, marginalised voices. So it it's kind of opening up a space for black voices, and not just in horror. Actually, like Boots Riley did "Sorry to Bother You," um, and I think Ava Duvernay is now doing a Marvel film, The Marvels. So it's I think it's helped people, or it's helped society to think about why aren't people of color why aren't marginalized voices being given a platform and actually now there's a demand for it so you know where there's demand they'll get catered to that was get out directed by jordan peel joshua give us a clue what's coming up next oh we're getting down on our hands and knees Oh, but what about on the podcast? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what we're doing for that. <laughs> uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Acast and Spotify so you don't miss that episode. And Joshua, where does the conversation continue? It continues on Twitter, Rob, at TornStubsPod. Let us know what you thought of Get Out and let us know uh, what your favourite film of the 21st century horror series is. <laughs> I can't talk today. We are off for a lovely cup of tea. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Get out! Get out!